This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up, we visit one of Henry VIII's finest artillery forts, Deal Castle. It's the big deal. I suppose it's the the most elaborate, the most sophisticated of them. It's it's a, a magnificent piece of work. We hear why it was built. The Pope was encouraging Henry's two main rivals on the continent, Francis I of France and Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, to come and take England back for the Roman Catholic Church. So there was a real and imminent threat that some attack might happen. And we'll discover how Henry's soon-to-be fourth wife, who stayed here, had a role to play in the politics of the time. And if you're just discovering the English Heritage Podcast, we have new episodes every Thursday. Now, this week, you join us on the southeast coast of England, which in the late 1530s was fast becoming a maritime militarized zone. This was where the Tudor monarch, King Henry VIII, was starting to build a series of coastal castles to defend England against invasion. And I've come to one of those, Deal Castle in Kent, to find out more. I'm meeting Paul Patterson, an English Heritage Senior Properties Historian. Paul, we're standing at uh, one of the highest points of the castle now, and we can see a shingle beach in front of us and the English Channel, of course. Northern France with Calais and Dunkirk. Calais more round to the right and Dunkirk more straight in front of us. So if you wanted to build a coastal fort in one of the most southeasterly parts of England, I can see why you would choose here. Yes, indeed. And also because this shingle beach that you just mentioned stretches for about two miles in either distance between an area of marsh near Sandwich on the left-hand side of us and between the White Cliffs on the right. So it's a particularly vulnerable spot which might be exploited by anybody wanting to land here. Why is it vulnerable? The places where an enemy could bring in ships to land soldiers and equipment are few and far between. And so this one, with a four-mile stretch of beach, is a very good candidate, plus the fact it's only 20, 25 miles away from the continent. Getting up this beach, though, would have been quite difficult because if I think if you did manage to land, it would be quite a slow effort trying to trudge over those shingles to get up to this sort of point. Yes, but that's, that's what soldiers have done throughout history, isn't it, you know? Your point about the shingle beach is well made. You know, no one likes to run up a shingle beach, especially under fire. But if you think about, you know, fairly flat bottom boats, galleys coming in here, beaching, bow on to the beach, disgorging soldiers, hundreds and hundreds of them, it would have been distinctly possible. You need a calm sea, and actually it's notoriously difficult to land on Deal Beach if the sea is not calm. So the conditions that we have here today are perfect. You'd have to pick your time. So we talked about why Henry VIII built this fortress here in terms of the geography. But what about the politics of the time? Why build a series of device forts along the south east coast of England and also further down towards Cornwall? Well, there's a very serious situation in late 1538, early 1539, where Henry is effectively alienated most of the, the people he's previously allied with in, 
on the continent, but also as a result of his, uh, the machinations over his divorce from Catherine of Aragon, his declaration of England as an independent state with no control from the Pope in Rome, the fact that Catherine of Aragon was an aunt of Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, who was one of his previous main allies on the continent, all this had conspired to make his situation less than secure. Plus the fact the Pope, who was particularly alienated by Henry's attitude over the divorce, the dissolution of the monasteries, the loss of Catholic control in England. The Pope was encouraging Henry's two main rivals on the continent, Francis I of France and Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, to come and take England back for the Roman Catholic Church. So there was a real and imminent threat that some attack might happen. Were they really actually trying to take the British Isles or just convert people back to Catholicism and to it, stop the eventual development of the Church of England? It was more complex than that. It was, it was partially about religion, but it was mainly about politics and power and money, effectively. If you taxes? Think, yes, exactly. I mean, the Pope had lost a massive amount of revenue from the Church in England, for instance, so he wasn't very happy. Henry VIII had previously been alliance with both Charles V and Francis, he wasn't any longer. There was a, a whole power game going on in which Henry had been a previous participant. Charles V and Francis I were great rivals. They'd been fighting for years in a series of conflicts called the Italian Wars. Henry had been to France in support of Charles on two occasions previously. He'd also been alliance with Francis against Charles. So it's, it's part of a continuous, complex game of power, money, politics and religion. And at this particular time, Henry finds himself on the wrong side of it. And I guess that's why he's got all these device forts along this area. The device, or the plan, because that's what device means, that Henry embarks upon in early 1539, about February, is a nationwide programme of assessing what are the defensive capabilities of the nation. So it includes the navy, it includes in every parish in the country, especially the maritime parishes, how many men are available, what weapons do they have, what are their capabilities. So it's kind of a national audit of the military resources of the kingdom. And as a result of that, deficiencies are, you know, at least he attempts to remedy them. Uh, and these forts are part of that solution. Uh, and they extend mainly along the, the south and east coasts, but there are new defences made in Wales, there are new defences made right up into the Scottish borders. So it's a huge undertaking that he embarks upon. How many of these device forts does he have in total then uh, across the coasts? Well, the, the, the classic device forts, these like deal, there are 10 of those along the south coast. But by the end of the device programme, which extends actually all the way through to 1545, 1546, there are about 42 significant fortifications and in between those there's, there's lots of little ones there's you know small fortifications made on small beaches here and there so it's 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 a more massive program than these 10 forts would lend you to believe and just along this stretch of shingle coast how many have we, have we got we've got sand down to our left is that right that's correct up, up the coast that's which about a mile that way which technically doesn't exist anymore uh there's a bit of it left but not a lot and then to our right moving westwards if you like there's warmer Walmer and Sandown were identical. They were two stone-built fortresses, rather like Deal. Deal is in the centre between those two. And then in between Deal and the other two are two more earthwork fortifications in each direction. Bulwarks, they called them. They were also artillery forts, but they were made of timber and earth. 
and then connecting the whole thing together, there is a defensive rampart and ditch. So if you like, for about four miles, you've got an entire defensive line. In many ways, this is the flagship of the device program, if we can look at it that way. More effort went here in one location than all the other locations. So I deal is the big deal in in the sort of uh, collection of uh, castles yes, down it the is. coast. It's the big deal. I suppose it's the, the most elaborate, the most sophisticated of them. It's, it's a, a magnificent piece of work. And out of those 42 across the country, they don't all survive today, but this is one of them that does. Yes, uh, and of the classic 10, the, the, the fortifications of the 1539-1540 period, English heritage has most of them, actually. And do they all follow the same design? Well, they are designed according to a set of principles, but they actually vary in how those principles applied. And if we go inside, I can show you a map where the actual designs are imprinted, and you can see how they vary. Just coming into the entrance here. We're just about to enter the keep. We've come down from the, the outer bastion, through one of the inner bastions which surround the keep, and we're now in the heart of the castle, this little cylindrical tower, the epicenter of Deal Castle. And into this room to our right here, and this is that map that you were mentioning just map. now. Yeah. And this is on a, uh, what looks like an original Tudor partition it wall. It is, yeah. It is on a Tudor partition, which is made of you know, heavy timber. And then the infill panels, which would have originally been wattle and daub and plastered over, we've placed this map to show how Deal fits into the general pattern of the device force across southern England. So you can see Sandown, Deal and Walmer. Then moving west, we've got Camber, Sandgate, Calshot, Hurst, Portland. And by the time we get to Cornwall, the last two, St Moors and Pendennis. It looks as though Walmer and Sandown, as you say, identical, deal a lot different. Right, well, Deal has two sets of bastions. It has the inner set of six, which are arranged symmetrically, like a petals of a flower, around the central tower where we're standing. Then you have a courtyard going all the way around the outside. And then finally, you have six more outer bastions before you get to the dry moat. So it's a very symmetrical, beautiful, flower-like arrangement. The thing that you notice if you're standing on the beach is, well, that's quite imposing. I don't know if I want to mess with that place because, A, how do you get in? Because you've got to climb the wall and then you end up in the moat about 20 to 30 feet down mm. and then you've got to climb another wall. That's the whole planning principle in that what you have is a series of layers of defence that you have to get through and also a series of tiers because each bastion is slightly higher, the, the inner bastions are slightly higher than the outer bastions, and the keep is slightly higher than the inner bastions. And each one of them has defensive capabilities, each one has gun positions. And so not only are you providing all-round fire from each of the bastions, overlapping, but you're providing tiers of fire as well. It's a very intimidating structure. These are designed with mathematical scientific principles behind them. The fact that they vary a little bit is because they were experimenting. This was new technology at the time, and so the shapes reflect the application of that technology by different people with different expertise. And that's why when you look at the map on the wall, you can see that there are some principles behind it, but they've been applied differently in different places. In Sandgate, still in the southeast, that's almost more triangular. Yeah. It's similar with Hurst, which is opposite the Isle of Wight. Calshot, very circular 
Portland semicircular. Yeah, it's a segment of a circle, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And St. Moore's. He's a trefoil. Three concentric circles. Yeah. And then Pendennis, very circular again. So there's what, a lot of variety. What you're seeing is a fusion between all technology, the medieval tower from the castle, if you like, and the more recent technology of the bastion, these artillery platforms. And you're seeing a fusion of the two. So you're still seeing some of the old knowledge being applied and it's being applied in different levels, in different levels of expertise by the people who are building it. They don't fully understand what they're doing. These schematics, these blueprints in the southeast look like the most advanced technology. And as you go further west, it's almost like they're working, as you say, with older technology, more basic designs. Yes, I think that might be true. There is a degree of sophistication in the, the group in the southeast. They are the first to be constructed as well, and, and they're probably perhaps where the purest application of the central planning that was going on. Who ran the castle here at Deal then, and how many men were stationed here during Henry's reign? A chap called Thomas Wingfield, who had been the overseer of the works during construction of Deal Castle, was given the captaincy in 1540. And he had command of initially 34 soldiers and gunners. But that's because it's simply intended as a holding garrison. 34 more men are not expected to operate a castle which has spaces for 143 guns. What happened was that in times of conflict or threat, then a lot more soldiers will be brought in. And that was done by, sometimes with professionals and mercenary soldiers, but more often than not by raising the local part-time soldiers who were the ordinary people of the parishes in the area. So if there were an invasion, how many men would be manning the gun ports here and above us? So if you think there are something like 53 small ports for handguns and then the rest are for substantial guns, which would take between two and five men to operate, you're beginning to see that we're talking about several hundred people to operate all the guns. Well, let's talk about why the Catholic nations of Europe, like Spain, France, would want to attack England. And I believe we've got a map here in the castle that we can look at and describe what Europe looked like yeah. in Henry's reign. Let's go and see. It's almost like a, a massive dining room table. For 30 people. For 30 people, <laughs> yeah. It's big. So basically, Europe at the time is made up of England, the Kingdom of France, the Kingdom of Spain, and the Holy Roman Empire, which more or less takes in southern Denmark, most of Germany, modern-day Germany, down to northern Italy, a bit of Belgium, and the Netherlands. But also extending into what is now the Czech Republic and Poland. So it's a, it's a huge block in the middle of Central and Eastern Europe. The background to all this is there had been a conflict raging in Europe, but particularly in northern Italy, between the King of France and the Holy Roman Emperor. It was a, a dispute about, effectively, land and control. It was never resolved, and so they were fighting a series of wars through the 1520s and the 1530s, into which Henry had imposed himself as a kind of power broker, if you like, in order to gain greater prestige for himself and for the Kingdom of England. And so he'd taken sides on a number of occasions. That was normal. However, 
In the late 1520s, early 1530s, Henry is seeking his divorce from Catherine of Aragon, unsuccessfully, because it's not supported by Charles V, Catherine's nephew. It's not supported by the Pope, and so he takes matters into his own hands. He arranges his own divorce, he marries Anne Boleyn, and he does a number of other things which begin to seriously jeopardise his position in Europe. One of them is the dissolution of the monasteries. The other is taking control of the church in England under the Act of Supremacy in 1534. So effectively he's saying, I am my own master, I will determine what happens in this country, I will determine the religion of this country. But if, if you think about this as a, as a continual diplomatic and military game, they took it seriously, but they were quite prepared to change sides again in a couple of years' time. So yeah. now I can start to understand why he wants to marry Anne of Cleves. Cleves is in modern-day Germany. Yeah. Why is that a strategic...? Okay, so Cleves is part of a triple duchy, and it's also part of an alliance of small German states called the Schmalkaldic League, who are developing a taste for doing things their own way, much like Henry was doing in England, in terms of political control and in terms of religion. But it's, it's very difficult for one person and one administration to control all this land in the 16th century, communications being what they were. It's a huge area. And so people are naturally going their own way and developing their own inclinations and political systems. And so there had been some trouble with the Schmalkaldic League and Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. And so in a, in a sense, they were a natural group to seek an alliance with. Anne of Cleves is part of that political game. So Anne of Cleves, I understand, stayed here at Deal Castle. Can you tell me whereabouts she would have stayed in the castle? The castle wasn't finished at that time. We're in the middle of the device construction programme, but it was clearly finished enough for her to come here, and it's upstairs from where we're standing, so let's okay. go and take a look. All right, let's head upstairs. And this is the spiral staircase. So this is right in the middle of the castle, the very centre of that symmetrical plan, and we're going up the spiral stair onto the first floor. The other sense that we get from having gone up those is you almost don't know where you are, because you go into a circular courtyard, yeah. you're trying to find the entrance, which is actually on the beach side, and then you have to f find your way inside, and then you go into another circular area, and then... Within that, you've got another circular area, this sort of Venn diagram. And then you're in the centre, but you sort of go, well, where am I now? It's, it's, it's quite confusing. It's like a... If I hadn't told you we were in the centre when we came up the central spiral staircase, you probably wouldn't have known. No. Because you are disoriented. You haven't, you haven't started at one point and finished up at that same point. And in an attack situation, it would have been chaotic. Yeah. And you would have been going from room to room, 360 degrees potentially. Yeah. And... That adds to the confusion, I'm sure. It does. Interesting. Okay, well, let's see if we can find the spot where Anne of Cleves might have stayed. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we're standing on the first floor now, and like the ground floor where we've just come from, uh, you have this central staircase, and around the central staircase, there is a series of partitions which divide the first floor into a series of segmental rooms. They're all segments of the circle. And so this was intended as the apartment's principally of the captain in control of the castle and perhaps for his, his lieutenant. Not finished on the 27th of December when Anne landed on the beach locally intending to go to Dover. 
blown off course ends up at a construction site, effectively. But it must have been sufficiently advanced for her to at least rest here and take refreshment, which is what happened. So it's an accident that Anne arrives here at Deal. Yeah, it is. This is very much, uh, oh God, what can we do? We've had to land in the wrong place. Let's just try and sort something out. So there must, you can imagine the preparations that must have been made at the last minute to receive her. See, she had a reception committee on the, on the beach and then would have been brought into one of these rooms where we're standing. We've talked about why he wanted to marry her. It was a strategic political decision. Why did he want to divorce her? eventually. Well, and how long were they married? Of course it was a strategic political decision but it was also his continuing desire for another child. He'd had a boy by Jane Seymour, Edward but he still wanted to guarantee the succession. So he's had the heir, the male heir yeah. and potentially he wants to have the spare. <laughs> I love it, yes he does. He, you know, in those days life being what it was, you needed more than one male heir just in case. And of course with Edward, he's the boy king eventually, yeah. who eventually dies, and then Mary Tudor comes exactly. on the scene. Hence. So you, you always need that insurance option. Indeed you do. The marriage didn't work because Henry simply didn't like her. Although he'd actually sent ambassadors abroad during the negotiations for the marriage, Hans Holbein had painted a portrait of her, which survives famously. When he saw her, he was not pleased. And as a result of spending a small amount of time in her company, he made his mind up. So he's married in early January. She arrives here on the 27th of December. They're married on the 6th of January, I think, by the 7th or the 9th of July. It's all over. So divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, Anne of Cleves. What happens to her upon divorce? She stays in England. It's, it's surprising. Well, it, it is surprising, but we can only imagine why she chose to stay here. But she was given privileges according to her rank so she was given property and money and land and a little bit of influence providing she didn't rock the boat uh, and you can imagine that going back to germany would have been something of a shaming experience perhaps. a failure a failure so perhaps she didn't want to go or perhaps they didn't want her to go i.e the people in in cleves but also retaining her keeps his Connections with Europe, close, yes. and within the, the kingdom. The alliance continues, definitely. And being an essential part of the alliance in the first instance, you can see why all parties would want an amicable arrangement. And in fact, she stays here for the rest of her life. She dies fairly young, I think she's 41. Obviously, she outlives Henry, but she makes appearances at court occasionally, even when he remarries. Mm. And she probably had a pleasant life, I, I would suggest even if not a particularly happy one. Paul and I then head down the central spiral staircase and into the belly of Deal Castle, called the Rounds, to round out our discussion. So finally, Paul, the, the legacy of Henry's device forts and Deal Castle itself, what is the legacy of, of these after his reign? It's difficult to chart, but obviously they, they represent one of the few systematic attempts to defend England against invasion. There wasn't another systematic attempt until the middle of the 19th century. And at the time, they would have been cutting edge. Yes, they were cutting edge. They were new, they were very largely designed here. They weren't using other people's ideas. They would have had a massive impact, impact on the population in terms of Henry's status and Henry's power. 
However, in terms of their long-lasting legacy, in terms of coastal defence, it is a blind alley in technological development and another kind of fortification actually takes over within a very short time. But they still continue to be used right into the 19th century because they're still pretty strong places and they're a place where you can have a garrison of guns and men to defend, in this case, the anchorages off the coast of Deal. And they perform that function into the early 19th century. So although they're not technologically cutting edge after the middle of the 16th century, they still perform a useful function in coastal defence for another 250 years. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. To discover more about Deal Castle, just head to the English Heritage website. We're back next week, sipping and discussing mankind's oldest alcoholic drink. Mead is of such antiquity that it appeared on Earth millions of years before humans, because as long as there have been honeybees, mead will have occurred naturally. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hello, this is Josie Long, here to tell you about Speaking with Shadows, a podcast series from English Heritage, presented by me. With the help of researchers and local community members, I'll bring you six stories from history that we should all be talking about. Subscribe to Speaking with Shadows, the podcast that listens to the people that history forgot, and get every episode delivered to your podcast feed for free. I can't wait for you to hear this show.